evidence and answers. Jesus and the Apostles state that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. However, most Old Testament scholars teach that the evidence clearly shows Moses could not have written the Pentateuch and that it was written hundreds of years after Moses in the 8th century BC. If this is the case, it would put the credibility of Jesus and the New Testament into question. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. At a recent conference hosted by the Wiley Baptist Church, Pat addressed the challenges of the Wellhausen theory and presented the case for mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Now with the conclusion to session four is our host, Pat Zucaran. And this is where Lot is taken, right? Remember, Lot there is dwelling in Sodom. And he says that as these kings here are running away, they are running right along here, along the shores of the Dead Sea. And in that Genesis 14 passage, it reads that these servants, they ran away, that they fell. They suddenly fell into these pits. It says here, now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And some of his men fell into these pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all possession of Sodom and Gomorrah and their possessions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in the land of Sodom. All right, so these kings from Mesopotamia are chasing these Canaanite kings, and they're chasing them here along the Dead Sea. And they said they fall into these pits over here. Okay, these warriors, as they're running away, they fall into the pits over there. Well, those of you who've been to Israel, when you go along the Dead Sea, what do you see? All of these sinkholes suddenly appear along the Dead Sea. Okay, the Dead Sea comes up, and then when it withdraws, sinkholes suddenly pop up all along the Dead Sea. Right? So even to this day, they tell you, don't go walking along the Dead Sea by yourself. Why? Because a sinkhole might suddenly appear, and toot, you fall inside. And every year, they have to rescue dozens of tourists who don't listen. They decide to go running around the Dead Sea, and they fall into this pit hole. And other people in the area, you can't see them. They're just walking and saying, whoa, where's John? Guy's gone. Whoa, where'd he go? Well, we don't know. He's gone. Okay, you can't see him. Uh, it has to be someone who's driving along the highway or higher up who can look into these pits and see these people. Okay, even if they're shouting or anything, you can't see them. Well, this guy describing exactly here what's happening during the battle. While these kings of Canaan are running away here, it says, uh, now the, in the valley the city was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some of them fell right into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. Whoever this guy is writing, he knows the terrain of this area. He knows it well. I mean, what you're looking for is what we call synchronisms. Okay, this kind of detail, those of you who've never gone along the Dead Sea, you don't know this stuff. I didn't know this stuff. I studied the geography of it. I took a whole course in the geography. I didn't know about this stuff until I went to Israel. All right, and then I we're driving along the bus there, and the tour guide says, hey, by the way, don't go running around the Dead Sea by yourself. You're going to fall into one of these sinkholes. They just suddenly pop up out of nowhere. All right, we don't know where they are. You may be walking, and there's a sinkhole underneath you, and your weight causes it to climb. Boom, you're going to disappear. We'll never find you again. So he said, don't go around. I didn't know that until I got there. 
how does a guy know this kind of detail who's never been to the Dead Sea? It's obviously someone who knows the terrain very well there. Right, so this story here, he's this, and, you know, and Abraham finds out about it, okay, and then he goes running up to Dan, and he defeats these, you know, and they're cruising out there, up in Dan and Damascus there. He goes up there, and he captures them, defeats them, kills them all, and then he rescues his son Lot. And in Genesis 14, he comes to Jerusalem. Jerus- he comes back to Jerusalem down here, or Salem, and there's a king there named Melchizedek. He blesses Abraham in Genesis 14, and Abraham gives him one-tenth of his spoils there. What's going on? Well, Abraham, remember, is Habiru. He's a nomadic marauder. Okay, you don't mess with these guys. All right, they're not kindly shepherds with staffs running around with sheep, you know, kindly old gentlemen with a... They're marauders. They're warriors. All right? They're warrior shepherds. That's what they are. You don't mess with these guys. Okay? Now, in fact, there is a professional football team in Washington that doesn't have a name yet or a mascot. Well, how about the Habiru? You know? Hey, great mascot there. All right? The Washington Habiru. Well, the Habiru are nomadic warriors, and they need a territory where they can hang out and graze their animals and all of that. And so they make alliances with the kings of these city-states. And the kings of the city-states make an alliance and say, okay, you guys can hang out in our territory for your flocks. In return, you guys are the front lines of our defense. Should we be attacked, we expect that you guys will be the front lines and part of our defense. And in return, whatever booty you get, 10% of that comes to us. And also, of your flocks, your yearly you know, flocks and all those things, you pay some to us. That's the agreement they have, these alliances. So when these kings come, they attack Sodom and all that, and they capture Lot and defeat these kings. These kings are running away. So Abraham goes chasing after them, defeats them up here in Dan and Damascus. When he's coming back, he's giving 10% to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who he has an alliance with. Right now, if you read the Genesis 14 account, the king of Sodom is also there. All right? And he said, hey, Abraham, my man, my friend, my buddy. Hey, how about some of that tribute? Hey, and Abraham says, oh, no way. My alliance is with the king of Salem. And he gives it to the king of Salem, right? And king of Sodom is going to go, come on, my buddy, my man, my main man, my homeboy. Come on. You know. Abraham says, no. Gives it to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. How does anyone know about an alliance like that? writing nearly a thousand years later. I mean, he doesn't have access to these kinds of Hittite or these kinds of Middle Eastern records. Even if he had them, he wouldn't know how to read a lot of them. These Egyptian or Hittite records or these Akkadian records. How does he know this kind of detail? These are the kinds of things we're looking at. Okay, when a witness is on the stand and he's being cross-examined and saying, all right, so-and-so's dog is allegedly bit this guy, and this dog was not provoked, right? And the witness on the stand says, no, that dog was provoked, and he's cross-examined. Who provoked him? That little kid over there that got bit. What was the kid wearing? Red T-shirt. What time was it? It was about dusk. The driving range was closing. No one was on the driving range except me hitting balls, and I saw that kid harassing the dog. That's why the dog bit him. How long was the chain? Oh, the chain was about 30 feet. If this guy, if this witness is nailing all these details... 
He's a credible witness. And my friends have been on trial, and they can tell you on the testimony of one witness, if he is credible, lawyers can build their case. They often indict criminals and others based on testimony of one witness. If he's, if he's nailing all these details, you've got details like this throughout the Old Testament that are describing Egyptian, Canaanite culture, Middle Eastern culture there from the Bronze Age. And he's nailing it every time. When you have consistency like that, again and again and again and again and again, if he gets one or two facts right, maybe he heard it from somebody. But when he's getting dozens and dozens and dozens of these facts and cultural practices and customs, and he's nailing it again and again and again, you're beginning to think, wait a minute, we got a credible witness here. This could be an eyewitness here or someone writing there in the Bronze Age. Okay? That's why we say it smells of Bronze Age. I mean, how does an Iron Age priest writing over a thousand years later, know this kind of stuff. So he's got knowledge of the Bronze Age culture, okay? Here you go. Sarah can't have kids. So what does she do according to the Genesis 16 account? She's childless. She gives her maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham. Say, go into her and get a son, okay? That way God's promise will continue, right? And so Hagar has a son named Ishmael, and all the inheritance would go to Ishmael. Well, the code of Hammurabi, I mean, where does that come from? Where did Abraham get that from? He got it from the code of Hammurabi and other Middle Eastern laws that taught that. For example, code 146 of the code of Hammurabi teaches that if a wife is childless, she may give her maidservant to her husband. Okay, it says that. If a man take a wife and she give a maidservant to her husband, and if that maidservant bear children, and afterwards she would take rank with her mistress because she has borne children, her mistress may not sell her for money. She may reduce her to bondage and count her among the maidservants. That's from the Code of Hammurabi. That's exactly what Abraham is practicing. That's where he got it from. That's the Genesis 16 story. Code 159, if the first wife and a female slave of a free man both bear him sons, and the father acknowledges the sons of the female slave as his own, the sons of the female slave shall share equally with the sons of the first wife in the paternal inheritance after the death of the father. If the father did not acknowledge the sons of the female slave as his own, then the sons have no right to share in the paternal inheritance, but both the female slave and her son shall be given their freedom. What do we see in Genesis 21? We see that Sarah, after years, God's promise comes to pass. She bears a son, Isaac, and this is the child of promise, right? And then it says there, Hagar's son, Ishmael, was mocking or teasing Isaac. And so Sarah gets upset and says, hey, Abraham, send this slave woman away. She shall have no inheritance with my son. According to the law, the Middle Eastern law there, Code of Hammurabi and other laws, that if the maidservant's son and the son of the first wife, they both share equally in the inheritance. Okay, they both share. So Ishmael and Isaac would share equally in the inheritance of Abraham. And Sarah says, no, that's not going to happen. Send her away. And the law allows that. The law says, then you shall set them both free. What happens? Hagar and Ishmael are allowed to go free, and they go. 
comes right from the laws of the Middle East. This is consistent with the laws of the Middle East. Okay? You've got all these what we call cultural and historical synchronisms coming together. Whoever this guy is knows Bronze Age culture. He knows Bronze Age law. How does the guy writing a thousand years later in the Iron Age, during the reign of King Josiah in these schools, know this kind of stuff? How do they know? They don't have access to these records yet. How do they know this kind of stuff? They might get a few correct, tradition passed down, but when they're just nailing it time and time and time and time again, they wouldn't have access to this kind of knowledge. Here's another one. In the Middle Bronze Age, you know the story Genesis 37, 27. Joseph is taken by his brothers and he's sold by a caravan to Egypt into slavery for 20 shekels. The price of a Middle Bronze Age slave, according to records that we have there, is exactly 20 shekels. Okay? Later on in the Late Bronze Age, during Moses' time, when you look at the law of Moses, a slave is sold for 30 shekels. In the Iron Age, when JEPD guys are supposedly writing and making up this story, a slave is sold for 130 shekels. How does the guy in the Iron Age know the exact price of slaves in the Middle Bronze Age and then in the Late Bronze Age? How does he know that kind of stuff? He doesn't have access to these kinds of records. How does he know that? I mean, all these details, man, this guy is just nailing it time and time again. Whoever wrote this, it's smelling of the Bronze Age, Moses period. Okay? All right, here's another phrase. A phrase you see in the Pentateuch. It says, thus and thus, kill these people and smite them with the edge of the sword. Smite them with the edge of the sword. Smite them with the edge of the sword. In other words, he's talking about a one-edged bladed sword. Okay, so he smite them with the edge of the sword. Well, during the Middle Bronze Age, Moses' time, the swords are these sickle swords from Egypt. You might have seen the movie in uh, the movie The Mummy. These only have one sharp edge. Okay, that's all they got. That's why you smite them with the edge of the sword. Suddenly when we come to the Iron Age, the period of the kings, that phrase disappears. Why is that? Well, because in the Iron Age now, you're using double-edged swords. Man, all these synchronisms... You can see it. This writer is getting it. How does he get these details right again and again? And we could go on all day, talk about all these cultural and historical details that this guy is getting right. Somewhere around here, this guy knows Bronze Age culture, and he knows it well. Now, covenants and treaties. Kenneth Kitchen does an incredible work on this. Treaties and covenants that are made, in the early Bronze Age, the Middle Bronze Age, the Late Bronze Age, the Iron Age are all very different. That's how we know when we get these records and we see a treaty between kings, we know pretty much what age they're from. Because Intermediate Bronze Age, Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, Iron Age, the treaties are very different. Now, in the Middle Bronze Age, or the Late Bronze Age when Moses is writing, the treaties have five basic parts. You have a prologue, okay? then a historical review of the relationship, then the stipulations, provisions for curses and blessings, and provisions for succession. This is the suzerain treaty during the 
Middle and Late Bronze Age. When you look at the suzerainty treaties there, during the time when Moses is writing here, like the book of Deuteronomy, it follows the suzerainty treaties of the Middle and Late Bronze Age. Iron Age treaties, 1000 BC and later, they're missing two of the five parts. They're missing two of the five parts. It's shortened in the Iron Age. Now, if a guy is inventing this story in the Iron Age, how is he getting all these details right again and again and again and again and again? Somehow this guy knows Bronze Age culture. He knows Middle Eastern culture. He knows Canaanite culture. He knows Egyptian culture. Hey, when Genesis 46, when Jacob is coming into the land of Egypt, Joseph tells Jacob, okay, make sure you don't ask him for land inside. Make sure you ask him on the outskirts because Egyptians despise shepherds. And that's correct. They did. They, all these cultural and historical details are synchronous, we say. This guy is getting it right again and again and again and again and again. When you see that consistent pattern in historical writing over and over and over and over and over again, that's good evidence that this guy is probably an eyewitness source there. Okay, so if you apply form criticism to the Pentateuch, okay, you end up with a Middle and Late Bronze Age writing right during the time of Moses. If you applied form criticism, you don't get an Iron Age writing, 1000 BC or later. You don't get that. How does a priest from a school in the 8th century BC know all these details about things happening hundreds of years before his time? He doesn't have access to these records. And how is he getting it right? Now, it's the Hyksos who brought the chariot to Egypt, the horse-drawn lightweight chariot to Egypt. And in Genesis, it says what? Joseph rode a chariot behind Pharaoh. That makes all the sense if it happened during the Middle Bronze Age, the time of the patriarchs. This guy knows Egyptian culture. Hey, he's nailing it again and again and again. Then we have archaeology that we're going to do in the final session here. We'll just cover a few. The table of nations that are mentioned there in Genesis 10, we have discovered many of the cities. One of them that we discovered is the city of Ur. Okay? The city of Ur. Who is from Ur? Abraham. Okay? We discovered it in about the 19, between 1920 and 1930, we discovered the city of Ur. And guess what? It was a thriving city. It was a metropolis for its time right there in southern Mesopotamia. There, right about 2000 BC. And the name, Abram, was a common name there discovered on tablets that we have found in Ur. In fact, there's an Akkadian tablet there dated in the 1500s. Records hiring of an ox by a farmer named Abram. We'll cover this a little more at that final series. About a little over 10 years ago, we discovered the city of Sodom, right? It's right here at a famous place called Tal El Hammam, right there in the northeast of the Jordan there. 
It is a massive city here. Here's the Tel of Hammam. The professor that I'm doing my uh, uh, studies under, Stephen Collins, he discovered Tal El Hammam. He discovered the city of Sodom. We'll go into more detail about that. It's a massive city. The excavations that they're doing show it's a city and it was destroyed suddenly by intense heat in about 1700 BC. When was Abraham around? Right about that time. What happened during Abraham's time? The city of Sodom was destroyed by fire. Balaam, we'll talk about the Balaam inscription found in up there in northern Jordan there. The ba this inscription here, plaster piece of all names the prophet Balaam. The Hittites, many thought were to be a mythological people. Back in late 1800s, early 1900s, we discovered the capital at Boghazkoi, and a great library was discovered, and the Hittites were found, and we'll talk more about that. The Merneptah Stila mentions the nation of Israel. And so you look at all these archaeological discoveries here, and they seem to support the this is written by a guy who was an eyewitness there during the time of the Middle Bronze Age and Late Bronze Age, all right? That would be the time of Moses. Well, what about some of these alleged discrepancies? JPD says, well, camels weren't domesticated and being used as early as the time of the patriarchs. Well, we have a lexical list from the Babylonian periods, 2000 B.C., showing that they did use camels. Sumerian text talks about camels and the drinking of camel's milk. They found camel bones in the houses there in Mari as early as the 25th century BC. The priestly codes, these law codes, we've discovered them in law codes throughout Mesopotamia and the Middle East, the Code of Hammurabi and others we talked about. Now, what about this phrase here that we find throughout Genesis, before there were kings in Israel? How do we explain that? Well, if you look in Genesis 36, 31, God told Abraham and Sarah what? That from their descendants would arise kings, rulers. Okay, so they knew the promise, and the nations around them have kings. All right, so that promise was given to them. Okay, Genesis 17, 16 states, I will bless her, Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Genesis 35, 11, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Moses, writing from Egypt, knows about kings in Egypt and all over the Middle East. Moses knowing Israel would one day become a great kingdom and kings would arise from the nation of Israel. We have good reasonable explanations for that phrase. So what do we conclude? Well, we conclude that the documentary hypothesis or the Wellhausen theory, although it's the most popular one out there, remains a dominant theory of Old Testament study. Really, if you look at the archaeology, and the internal evidence, and you match it up carefully, it blows all kinds of holes in the documentary hypothesis. The cultural and historical synchronisms that you see, how this writer is getting it right, again, again the cultural practices, the geography, the land, the historical details, this guy is getting it right, makes Moses a very reasonable candidate for the first five books 
of the Old Testament. And as biblical archaeology has developed, discoveries have been made and continue to be made. Okay, the Wellhausen theory was developed in the 1800s and is based on 200-year-old archaeology. Okay, when we look at the archaeology we have today, it continues to uphold the integrity and the historical authenticity of the Old Testament. So when you put it all together, you've got a strong and reasonable case for Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, the first five books. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold a conference at your church or location, give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Please use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucarand.